if you became a an interpreter in Iraq in you know the early 2000s, um, you probably had the hope that and the expectation that you would be taken care of, that you would be protected, you wouldn't be left in the lurch. And for many people, that expectation was not was not delivered. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello and welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. Refugees, people from countries in crisis, fleeing oppression and death. America was once a beacon to the world's tired, poor, and huddled masses yearning to breathe free. But things have changed. In his last term, President Barack Obama uh, said the U.S. would accept 110,000 refugees. That number is now just 18,000. There's a moral argument here, sure, but also a compelling strategic one. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, but only if you let them be your friend and you be a good friend to them. Here to help us sort all this out is Joe Kuhn. Kuhn did a tour of duty in Iraq as a cavalry scout in the U.S. Army National Guard. Now, he's the senior vice president and co-founder of the Niskanen Center. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. Great to speak with you, Matthew. All right, so when we say refugee, what exactly are we talking about, and how is it legally distinct from other kinds of immigration? Sure. Well, uh, obviously, there are various paths um, for immigrants wishing to come to the United States, and some of those include refugees and asylees who are escaping violence or persecution. Um, sometimes they show up at our southern border, for example, from Central or South America uh, seeking asylum. Sometimes they are folks who we have worked with in um, areas of conflict like Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, some some of those folks have worked with U.S. coalition forces and are therefore in danger uh, if they remain in their country of origin. Um, there are various circumstances and uh, or, or original starting points um, and reasons why someone would want to come to the United States and, and what it is that they are trying to escape. But it's typically people who are in some level of, of grave danger uh, and are trying to seek a better life for themselves and their families. Oh, okay. Let's, well, what, what exactly is the specific difference between an asylum seeker and a refugee? Well, uh, a refugee is typically going through a long um, vetting process, typically almost exclusively outside of the United States. Um, asylees often turn up at the U.S. border and ha- and begin the process here. Sometimes they spend some time in detention. Sometimes they're detained briefly and their cases are sorted in courts of law. They are released pending, you know, further developments in their case while they await final judgments. Um, but oftentimes it is uh, it, it is where the person begins the process that matters. Okay, so it's less about uh, the specific circumstances of what they're fleeing and more about kind of where they show up to start filing paperwork. Right. Okay. Now you've, this is, this is an area that you've got personal experience with, correct? Uh, You worked with a lot of people in Iraq that want to come over here now, specifically I'm thinking of, of Bandar. 
Sure, sure. In my, I spent all of 2015 um, about 40 miles north of, of Baghdad. Uh, and in my time there, there you work with lots of sort of local nationals. They are sometimes, you know, contractors providing services, transporting, you know, goods. Uh, and sometimes, as in the case of Bandar, they're interpreters who are helping coalition forces directly. Um, sometimes, you know, that includes just work, you know, working at the front gate uh, as a translator. In Bandar's case, and in the case of many of the folks I met, it meant going out on missions, going on patrols, um, raids, reconnaissance, uh, intelligence gathering missions, these sorts of things. Uh, and sometimes operating very close to or sometimes even within um, the villages in which they were born. So these are uh, dangerous circumstances for these folks. And that's that's how I came to know Bandar in, in 2005. He was assigned to my unit. One of our jobs uh, as a cavalry troop was as a QRF, a quick reaction force, so sort of sort of a, you know, a 911 for the base um, investigating problems outside the base and in the surrounding villages. And uh, I met Bandar on, on, you know, our first mission together. He was, I believe, 18 or 19 at the time, um, just an infectious smile, uh, a very happy, upbeat uh, person um, who it was really a, a joy to get to know. And you said that was 2015? I'm sorry, that was 2005. Okay. Um, right. That's what I thought. I was just making sure. sure. Okay, so what, what happened to Bandar? Sure. So, you know, uh, as thankfully these things do, my my one-year tour ended. Um, on my way out, I had an opportunity to talk with Bandar and some of my other interpreters. It was sort of a, a, a difficult goodbye. Um, didn't know what life had in store for me. Uh, certainly had more concerns for them, leaving them in a situation that was you know, more, more or less as dangerous as, as when I'd arrived. Um, and so I gave, you know, Bandar my contact information, my phone number, my email address, um, and hoped that I would hear from him again. And some amount of time passed, but at, at some point um, in the following year, in, in 2006, he, he did call. And we would talk on the phone, you know, sporadically every few weeks, every couple of months. Um, typically, we would talk about, you know, just about anything <laughs> other than, um, Iraq and the war. I mean, he was obviously living it. He was looking to get his mind off of his daily circumstances. I was, you know, doing my best to, to readjust to, you know, uh, my, my regular life. Um, but before long, probably in, in 2007, early 2007, um, that, that really changed a lot. Uh, the calls were not about, you know, our days and joking around and remembering, you know, funny incidences or this or that, it, it became uh, clear to me that that he was terrified, that, that things had changed for him. And what had happened was he had left the base. He was no longer working there. He had started to receive threats. Um, his mother actually handed him uh, a few notes that had been left at the house. And um, what she she couldn't read, so she didn't know what they said. But when she gave them to Bandar, they, you know, all three Letters said something along the lines of, um, you are a traitor and we're going to kill you. Um, and I started getting more and more frequent calls from Bandar. He became more and more desperate and he was, he was looking to get out and he was pleading with me, um, to help him get out of, of Iraq. And those emails and calls, um, 
you know, lasted several months. And in that time, we, we, on our end, um, from, from Oregon, my family and I, with, uh, with the help of a fantastic pro bono lawyer, uh, who, you know, a, a lawyer who was working pro bono named Teresa began to sort of set the table for how we might, uh, get him out of there, how we might secure him, um, a visa. And that was a long multi-year process, um, beginning in about 2007, um, that took about two years. We, he, he finally did arrive in 2009. And, and before then, it was a series of increasingly, um, terrified and, and desperate phone calls and, and emails. I admit that it was such a burdensome process. Uh, not only had Bandar been very seriously vetted before being able to work with coalition forces in Iraq, you know, background checks, all of these sorts of things. Um, but to get him out of the country, to secure him a special immigrant visa, which was the, the category that he would fall under for, for former interpreters and people that work with coalition forces, to secure that visa, there were, you know, incredible hoops that you had to jump through. Um, he had to go to a, an Iraqi police station and get a background check without, of course, um, letting on what it was for. Uh, keeping it as secret as possible. He had to have a letter, uh, essentially a letter of recommendation, um, vouching for him from a, you know, a general or flag officer. Um, now I was able, and, and my lawyer and some other people in our network were able to help with these things, which was difficult enough for us. And we obviously had, you know, strong military collect, uh, connections. And it, it would have been impossible, um, had he not had, people with our connections helping him. And, and that's why a lot of people uh, who were in Bandar's situation still are, and they're still over there. Um, luckily, we were able to get him out, and he arrived in Washington, D.C. In, in 2009, which was incredibly exciting and relieving. Okay, so we kind of, that's, you're really highlighting kind of what I would say are some of the moral arguments for this. These people are in danger. Uh, and the, you know, they helped American, they helped the American cause in the countries that we're in, but there's also a strategic component to this. Uh, you know, Trump or U.S. President Trump has recently been bragging a lot about reducing the numbers of refugee admissions. Uh, he made a big show of this, uh, in September, I believe, in Minnesota. Um, what are, the consequences of going down the path that he's laid out. What are the consequences of cutting our refugee number intake numbers down to 18,000? Right. Well, you know, as, as you mentioned, there's the moral component, right? I mean, these, when we're talking about people like Bandar in particular, these are people who quite literally risk their lives helping American troops, allied troops in very difficult and dangerous circumstances. I think it is pretty fair to say, and there's, general agreement uh on both sides of the aisle and, and regardless of your you know political or ideological persuasion that that we do have a responsibility to these folks more generally um refugees are uh, a source of um are, are a fantastic tool for u.s security reasons um not only do they come to this country sometimes with bandar's skill set as a you know as a linguist um and work for the u.s government or U.S. forces, um, or not, you know, not other national security agencies, um, but they they're often fleeing situations, um, fleeing our sort of antagonists and opponents in 
you know, war-torn regions and in conflicted areas, and they have a tremendous amount of intelligence that they bring with them. Not only that, you know, some not insignificant number of them who do come here do end up going home when circumstances change. And that is, and their returning home is an important sort of, um, it is important, it is an important remedy to the propaganda that exists in these places to have someone, you know, who has spent time in the U.S., who has absorbed some of, you know, the, the American dream, American ideals to return to their country of origin, to have stories of the treatment they receive, the life they lived here, to sort of counterbalance uh, propaganda that it, that exists at home, the, the recruiting tool that some of these, these groups use. Um, in addition to that, the refugee resettlement program, uh, USRAP, was sort of designed in part as a, as a national security tool, right? We, we use it, we use the uh, admissions of refugees here in the United States and our assistance relocating them to other friendly countries as a bargaining chip, as a point of leverage with countries that maybe border these sort of conflict areas, right? If you're going to uh, talk to Turkey or Jordan or Libya and encourage them to set up refugee camps, which have their own problems, are, you know, are, are dangerous and, and sometimes unstable in their own right, but are greatly preferable to the conditions within the conflicted country. If you're going to go to these countries, uh, it is often, you know, imperative that you be able to say, you know, hey, look, I want you to stand up or maintain this camp. Uh, it's, it's critical for regional stability. As you do this, we will sort of act as a release valve. We will not only take, you know, refugees uh, into our country, but we will help relocate them elsewhere. Uh, these are these are important uh, sort of bargaining concessions that we make in sort of international diplomacy. And without, if if we are less inclined to take in refugees, we lose that bargaining chip. These other countries are are less inclined um, to act in these regions to help stabilize very difficult situations, and that's critical to regional stability and, and to U.S. U.S. security interests. This is something that's been studied pretty well by you know various colleges, various think tanks. What? Continue with your question, but I think we do want to jump into the fact that we have a record number of refugees today, and we should probably address why it's bad that we're cutting resettlement at a time where that's a historic problem. And I'll, one other... One other thing to add about, you know, the, the problem of instability and the role that refugee camps and refugee resettlement plays is in the 15 largest refugee returns in the last few decades since 1990. Um, one third of those resulted in a return to conflict and slaughter. And this is exactly what we're trying to avoid, um, not only for destabilization in those places and the surrounding areas, um, but because the, you know that destabilization, that bloodshed of innocence, these sorts of conflicts often require U.S. military support and engagement, and that's something that we would obviously like to avoid if we can. And refugee resettlement is one tool among many um, in sort of solving that problem um, further from home without having to dedicate U.S. resources. Um, personnel, you know, blood and treasure um, to solving these, these very difficult and complex problems. Hey, sleepyhead. 
Why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a Nectar mattress. With award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. So you make it sound like uh, the way we're treating refugees is like taking a weapon out of the U.S. arsenal. Absolutely. And you know there are lots of people who believe this to be true, including the 27 generals and admir- former retired uh, generals and admirals who, who signed a letter just last month um, stating exactly this. Um, these are people who have obviously worked in the military under numerous administrations um, who got together to say this is not only a moral issue, and it is, but there is a strategic imperative in the U.S. refugee admissions program, and it would be short-sighted to American interests to reduce the numbers in the way that the Trump administration is proposing. And this is especially important right now because we are dealing with a record number of refugees, correct? Right. Uh, You know, historic highs. Globally, you know, 70 million displaced people around the world, uh, an enormous refugee population of about 20 million, half of which are kids. Um, You know, uh, again, this is as we are seeing historic numbers of displaced people and refugees, we are also seeing, unfortunately, historically low numbers of resettlement within the United States. The Trump administration's 2019 goal of of 30,000, of resettling 30,000 refugees was, you know, the lowest in the history of the U.S. refugee admissions program. Um, And there, as as you know, and, and many have surely read, there is talk of bringing that much lower, even potentially to zero. Um, this month, when we close out October in a, in a, in a few days, uh, it is possible or even likely that there will have been zero refugees resettled in that month in the United States. I don't think that's happened before. And it's it's a big problem. Now, there are also domestic benefits to refugee resettlement, right? Um, what, like, yes. what, what are they in terms of uh, economics and national security? Sure. Well, interestingly, and, and you may have read about this too, um, the Trump administration had a study that reportedly um, Trump advisor Stephen Miller and some others uh, maybe sought to uh, suppress. It did leak that found that there is a a net economic benefit to refugee resettlement in the United States. Sure, there is an upfront sort of initial cost as these refugees initially settle and require certain services, uh, both governmental services and and certainly aid from non-governmental organizations. Um, But in relative short order, they end up paying more in taxes than they do receiving in benefits. Now, that's a small thing, but it's an important counterpoint to what we often hear that, you know, people come to this country, bleed us dry, they take all these benefits uh, at taxpayer expense and contribute nothing. And that's just not what even this administration, 
uh, fines. The, the literature does not bear that out. Um, on top of that, they contribute billions of dollars a year to local and the national economy. Um, refugees. So over the last decade, 80 percent of U.S. counties experienced decline in their working age populations. Refugees help fill these labor shortages. And importantly, they do it in key industries where you see this decline sometimes most often, for example, in, you know, meat packing or manufacturing, healthcare, these sorts of industries. On top of that, refugees as a group, uh, tend to have higher rates of entrepreneurship than even the native born population, which is important, right? It's, it's not just those high profile cases that we see of you know, big companies founded and created by refugees, your, you know, your Google, uh, your WhatsApp or your PayPal. There are thousands of, of smaller businesses that are started by refugees. And that's also important for job growth. New businesses are sort of the, well, are in fact the lead driver of new job creation. So bringing these refugees in, uh, not only do they pay more in taxes and they receive in benefits, but they start businesses that employ, you know, na- the native born population and others. And they're critical to these local communities. On top of that, refugees often resettle in some of the most economically depressed areas of this country. There are many places in the rest belt that have larger refugee populations, and they are critical to the economies of those regions. So there used to be a political consensus around this. Um it was, you know, post post World War II, uh, a lot of our current, a lot of the way we 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 treated refugees and treated resettlement programs, kind of up until the very recent history, uh, was a bipartisan issue. Um, how and why did this collapse, and how do we rebuild it? What are the political solutions here? Right. You're absolutely right about the consensus. And I would I would point people to an excellent paper uh, who was ri- that was written by Professor Aydin Salian from the University of North Texas, a senior fellow here at Niskanen, um, in which he spoke with 15 key experts on refugee resettlement um, from a variety of government and non-government uh, agencies who had worked in uh, Republican and Democratic administrations to sort of get their thoughts on the consensus um, what sort of happened to it and, and their thoughts about what happened, what is happening now. And the, the general view is, uh, shock and dismay about what is currently happening. But also there's a lot of information in this paper about that consensus and the fact that, you know, for 40 years, um, whether you were a Republican or a Democrat, you were largely very supportive of refugee resettlement. I mean, the, the numbers of refugees settled in any given year between a Democratic administration and a Republican one, uh, it didn't really vary much. It was still in, you know, in the, in about the 80,000s, right? Um, so it, it didn't, it was a separate issue. Refugees were really a separate issue from what is often a more contentious issue of, you know, other avenues for legal, uh, and undocumented immigration, right? Refugee resettlement was, uh, considered a, uh, a sort of different topic on which most people, despite political party, agreed. So that held, as I said, for, for 40 years, uh, but that really began to change with the crisis in Syria in, you know, about 2014, uh, 2015, especially, which created, you know, not just in the United States, but sort of a global backlash, a sort of a populist anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim backlash. 
And that really culminated in the terror attacks in Paris in 2015. So that is really when the refugee issue sort of flipped and morphed into becoming uh, predominantly an issue of the threat of terrorism. And of course, then candidate Trump uh, really latched on to that issue to sort of help drive a base of support. And it really became about um, sort of convincing people that that these folks uh, were uh, an absolute threat. And that became not just a campaign platform. Uh, it became a drive for the, the Muslim ban, the travel ban, however you'd like to describe it. Uh, it really became sort of a defining characteristic of of this of this administration um, and and then candidate Trump, which really just changed the dynamic. And then support for refugees uh, for the at least publicly really did seem to kind of divide by party line. Um, and that's that's where we are now. Why were Cold War refugees different than today's refugees? Um, I'm sure there are lots of complicated reasons that was the case. Uh, certainly some of it has to do with the threat that they were escaping in communism, right? Uh, the Republican Party, of, of course, was viewed communism as a, as a grave threat, uh, and the people who were fleeing it, the enemies of, you know, communist countries and communist leaders were, you know, quite clearly to them our friends. Um, it probably mattered that some of these places and the, and the people escaping them seemed at least uh, culturally closer to what people in the United States um, sort of knew. And, uh, you know, those, those, those conflicts in the regions that are most affected uh, shift over time. And, we are now um, in a different world, right? Where it's typically um, folks in the in the Middle East, in Central and South America, uh, who are often in the gravest danger and are are looking to escape. And circumstances have, have clearly changed. And support for relocating these people um, is now a, an issue that is more divisive in this you know hyper partisan politicized time. And does this make it harder to find defectors, you know, actually turning enemies into friends and gaining intel? Well, I'm, I'm sure that it does. Right. Uh, if you became a, an interpreter in Iraq in, you know, the early 2000s, um, you probably had the hope that and the expectation that you would be taken care of, that you would be protected. You wouldn't be left in the lurch. Um, and for many people that expectation was not was not delivered right um it seems pretty clear to me that other folks would be more hesitant to putting themselves in a greater level of danger by working with us you know against a common enemy if their expectation of safety and protection is is less right uh, so that is that is definitely a, a problem do you this is a weird question uh <laughs> But do you see many Iraqi refugees resettled um, anywhere? Like, would, do you have any in your neighborhood? Would you be comfortable with an Iraqi farmer as, as you know, a neighbor? Do you think they can they can integrate into American society? 
Well, absolutely. And my, my experience is obviously a little, a little different. I had an Iraqi refugee living in the bedroom next to me for, uh, for two years. Um, but, you know, a- absolutely. There are large populations of Iraqi refugees, uh, in, in some places in the Midwest, uh, California, certainly around and near San Diego has a large population. Um, these are our folks who come here and, you know, work hard. Bandar, while he was living with me in Washington, D.C., his, his English was not, was not obviously fluent. It wasn't, it wasn't excellent, but he held down two jobs at the same time. He's, you know, riding a, a bike, uh, through deep snow to get to these jobs. Uh, he has, since he moved to the United States, gone to school, gone to community college. He has, uh, worked his way up in his career. He started a family. He has deep roots in this country. And honestly, you would be hard pressed to find, uh, you know, a, a native born American who was more, who was more patriotic than he is. And this is not an exception. It, it really isn't. Uh, these are folks who are, um, grateful for an opportunity to be here and, and make the most of it. What is the long-term strategic cost of not fixing this problem? Well, as we've, as we briefly discussed, there's, first of all, I think the, the moral issue, right? I mean, these bringing in people in danger from around the world, being a welcoming nation is, you know, part of, maybe not always realized, but part of the American ideal as a, as a country, you know, founded by immigrants and built by immigrants ever since. Uh, it is not just part of our sort of, uh, important part of our identity and how how we view ourselves as a country and as 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 a people um, but how we want the rest of the world to view us and the leadership that we want to display to them um more specifically we talked about the economic benefits i mean there really are <clears throat> substantial you know local and national benefits to bringing in people who will want to realize the american dream people who have often endured great hardship just to get here um, who want to be fully, you know, functioning and contributing members of, of this country. Uh, and then of course, as we've discussed, we've got the, the national security component, uh, not only in our ability to interact, you know, diplomatically, uh, with other countries, but our ability to draw talent. For example, the, you know, linguists like Bandar and others, um, here to, to help us in, you know, uh, national security and intelligence, intelligence gathering. Um, but, uh, but also as success stories of people who will return to their countries and, and help sort of counteract some of the, the propaganda and, and recruiting tools being used in their, in their home countries. Joe Kuhn, thank you so much for coming on to War College and walking us through this uh, complicated topic. Great to talk with you, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in, War College listeners. War College is myself, Matthew Galt, and Kevin Nodell. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like the show, we've got tons of archives, about five years' worth, good Lord, available through uh, pretty much anywhere fine pods are casted. Uh, if you like the show, please leave us a review and a star rating on iTunes. It does help other people find us. You can reach us on Twitter, at war underscore college, or at MJ Galt or at KJK Nodell. We will be back next week. Please stay safe until then.